If you have a Bible, open it with me to the book of Acts, chapter 27. Acts 27. We're going to look at the island of Malta, the things that took place on that tiny island in the Mediterranean Sea as we look at this morning at the storm, the ship, and the serpent. By the way, the title slide uh, is an actual picture, modern day, of a Euroclidon making landfall on Malta. <laughs> so I thought, it give you an idea of the storm these guys were facing. It was a big storm, and they still have them <laughs> there. Yeah, things haven't changed weather-wise in a couple thousand years. So as we get into this, just by way of a brief review, after two years, the Apostle Paul had been under house arrest in Caesarea. Uh, that's a city on the coast of Israel, about 65 miles from Jerusalem. Uh, and, and he had appealed his case to Caesar. <laughs> it, was being, uh, it was a political circus there. Uh, so Festus, the Roman governor uh, at Caesarea, he, he should have waited until spring, but <laughs> I think he was a little put off by Paul and decided not to. He opted to send Paul to Rome at a time of year that sailing was really difficult. Uh, it was probably right around August uh, in the year 59 AD, just a little over a quarter century from the events, the cross, and the resurrection, and so on. So Paul and some other prisoners uh, had been delivered to a centurion by the name of Julius, a noble guy. We'll see more of that next week as we wrap up the book, because Julius, I think, had a profound effect on uh, the the people when they got to Rome. At any rate, uh, Paul is traveling, we know, with Luke, uh, also a guy by the name of Aristarchus. We talked about him last week. He just shows up here and there throughout the New Testament possibly others, uh, that accompanied them on the journey. So they initially set out in a small boat, a, a small ship, that it was one that traveled close to the coastline. And they sailed, initially they sailed north up around the north shore of the island of Cyprus and made their way to a city called Myra, uh, which was a seaport in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, so uh, they'd made, made their way uh, in this small ship. So from there, knowing that they were going to have to hit the open water of the Mediterranean to be able to get to Rome, the centurion found a large Egyptian grain ship, uh, which was bound for Italy. So it, it tells us, the text tells us that the, 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 the journey was difficult from the start. They faced contrary winds as they traveled slowly across the open waters of the Mediterranean. And they came to a place called Fair Havens, which is uh, a seaport on the southern coast of Crete, and they spent much time there, the Bible tells us, as they sheltered from the increasingly bad weather. So uh, things were not going smoothly from the start on this journey to Rome. Uh, and we've talked about, I remember Brian talked about too, about Paul had an all-expense-paid trip to Rome. <laughs> this is going to be a doozy. <laughs> and so uh, it was not yeah, yeah you, we, we get these romanticized ideas about, yeah, it'll be like a cruise ship, you know, we'll just be over there, you know, <laughs> drink with an umbrella or whatever. You know, no, that's not what happened. It was rough, really rough. Uh, it was probably about October when they were at Fairhavens, uh, said that they stayed there for a while. Uh, and at that point, sailing was going from difficult to treacherous. Uh, very shortly after this, the Mediterranean would essentially shut down for, for ocean, for sea traffic, for sailing traffic. They just didn't sail through the winter months. Very, very dangerous. So 
the window was closing and Paul, he, is, he had a really bad feeling uh, about leaving Fair Havens and, and he warned the men that they needed a winner there. It'd be good if we just stay right here, guys. And uh, he told the centurion that. The centurion went to the ship's owner and to the helmsman and and they overruled him, essentially. They said, no, we're going to take off. We, and I think that there was probably some bias with them because there probably wasn't a lot to do in Fair Havens. They wanted to go to a uh, a seaport called Phoenix that was a lot better harbor to weather in or to winter in, but it was also probably, there were probably more amenities and stuff on the shore for them. So uh, the decision was made to proceed. So uh, we saw last week that as they made that decision, that right after that, a soft <laughs> a south, or I mean, a south wind blew softly. And that's very telling because as this south wind blew, as it began to blow, they interpreted that as, hey, this is our window to set sail. Let's get out of here. So they did. Soon after that, a violent storm called a Eurocliden, which is a, it was a typhoon, essentially, came up. And it came up so suddenly that they couldn't turn the ship around to head into the wind. If you've ever been on the ocean where the swells start rolling, they time the distance between the, the crests and, and the trough of the, of the sail. I, a friend that used to uh, used to go out with on uh, Santa Monica Bay. He had a 45-foot uh, small ship, a large boat. And uh, if those swells started getting too tight, too close together, it got to be very concerning because you had to turn around before you got hit by another one. If you got caught in the trough, you're going to roll over. You're going to capsize. So they got to the point that they, we, can't, we can't turn this thing around. The ship's about 200 or over 200 feet long. So they said, you know what? Let's just let her drive. And we looked at that last week. What that meant was they lowered the sails and just let the wind and the storm push them along. So uh, at that point, it says that, that they, after many days, they threw out the tackle, the, the, all the rigging on the ship, probably one of the masts. And it says that the tempest had continued to beat on the men. Uh, they got to the point that they lost hope. They said, that's it. We're all going to die. We're not getting out of this alive. Uh, the storm had just shown, they had been shown by the storm, by the weather, that there was no way that they were going to make it out. So the, the, the whole crew is discouraged. They're very violently seasick. Uh, lots going on on that ship. At that point, Paul reminded them that they should listen to him back at Fair Havens. <laughs> and, but he, he wasn't doing that to be antagonistic. Because he, he, was, he was using that to sort of set the table for, look, I told you this was going to happen, but let me tell you what's happening now. And then he goes on to tell them to take heart. There would be no loss of life among them. The only thing that would be lost would be the ship that they, that they were on. So uh, sort of the good news, bad news thing there. He read, and then he related to them that that information had come from an angel of the God to whom he served, telling him, don't be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. Remember, that's been God's intent all along. From the time he was in Jerusalem a couple of years ago, you've got to come before Caesar. That is God's will for you. This is going to be, it looks like it's not going to happen, but rest assured it is. And he said, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So, uh, and, and what he also followed that up with is that they would lose the ship as they ran aground on a certain island. Hold on to that because that comes to play in what we're going to be looking at this morning. So after two weeks of being driven by the wind, the rain tossed (laughs) in the storm, 
we're told they began to draw near land and they let out four anchors behind the ship, probably sea anchors. They were probably too deep for them to hit the bottom. Uh, but they wanted to slow the ship down because they, they don't want to just ram up against any part of the coastline there. There's a lot of rocks. And so they try to slow the ship down. And then Paul reminded the men to eat. It had been a couple of weeks since they ate, not because they didn't have food, but because they, they were probably up chucking everything they tried to eat at that point. I mean, it was a really bad, bad deal. Uh, so Paul takes bread, he prays over it, he breaks it, and he begins to eat. The crew, the people on board are encouraged, and they begin to eat too. So uh, there's 276 people on this boat. So Paul's there with 275 other people, and his actions, his encouragement is beginning to have a profound impact on the people on that ship. So at that point, they knew the ship was going to be lost. And so they went and they took, remember, this is a grain ship. The hold was filled with tons and tons of wheat. And they take the grain and they need to get the ship to ride as as high out of the water as possible because if they're going to run it aground somewhere, they want to be able to get as close to the shore as they can in doing that. So they get rid of, they toss all the wheat into the sea and uh, they are now ready to approach this island that they had seen was coming. So we left off last week with verse 39, and that's where we're going to pick it up this morning. Uh, Acts 27, 39, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. So this is the island of Malta. Melita is another translation for that, uh, where they were about to land. And it had a very rocky coastline with relatively few narrow strips of sandy beach. I mean, this is a big chunk of rock sticking up out of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Slide one here shows the the shoreline of Malta, much as they would have seen it in their day. As you can see, it doesn't look very friendly for a ship. And there were a few places that people speculate uh, that the shipwreck took place. We'll look at one of them uh, that, that it's actually so named. Uh, as we go along. Verse 40, and they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. Well, we're going to lose the ship anyway. Why haul them in? Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. So these guys are getting with it now. Uh, And again, since the four anchors, they were the only brakes that they had to slow the ship down. Once they were gone, the only hope that they had was to gain enough speed to carry them over the rocky reefs and, and to, to, then they needed to steer between the rocks to get to the beach. Now there were two rudders on the stern of the ship and they were hand rudders. They were not, you know, like the captain and the wheel and all that that we see. Uh, and they had been tied during the storm when they let the ship drive with the winds. They couldn't have the rudders just flopping around everywhere. The ship would have not been easy to control. Uh, so they would untie them now because they needed to have the rudders as they attempt to steer the ship around the rocks to the shore. Verse 41, but striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground and the prow stuck fast, remaining unmovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. So where two seas met is one word in Koine Greek in the original language this is written in. And it speaks of a sandbar or a reef in an area where two currents meet. So uh, have you ever been to the beach and you look and like out way offshore, out beyond the surf zone, you see waves breaking out there? Well, that's the idea here. What, what he's talking about, 
You may not see it on the surface, but there's some structure under the water that is causing that to happen. So where two seas meet uh, was likely where there was a bay and then the sea in general, and there's a, there's a breakwater there. So uh, in slide two, there's a bay. I want to show you this. This is interesting because this fits the definition of where we're, where we're at really well, except it's sunny and they didn't have umbrellas. Um, <laughs> this is a bay on Malta called St. Paul's Bay. Uh, it's a rocky bay on the northeast coast of Malta. Uh, where two bodies of water meet with a sandy beach at the end of it. Interesting. It's possible that this is the place, uh, but nobody really knows uh, for sure which part of the island they were shipwrecked on. So remember, though, too, <laughs> this is not a calm, sunny day like we see in the photo. The storm is raging. The ship had been largely disabled as they attempted to bring it to shore and ran aground. Uh, this is an intense moment. Understand that. These, these people, I mean, they're, this is like life or death. This is like, this is the time where we make a run for the shore and we don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> the passengers, uh, as well as the soldiers and the apostle Paul and his companions knew it. This is an intense moment. Verse 42. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. Uh, now, Roman law was very strict with regard to losing prisoners. We saw that, uh, remember, when, when the apostles were let out of jail and and the king ordered the soldiers executed. I think it was like 12 of them back earlier in the book of Acts. Same kind of deal. Uh, because the soldiers themselves were subject to the death penalty if a prisoner got loose. They were not, they were, they had a, a great incentive program to hold on to prisoners. So <laughs> the thinking was better to have a dead prisoner than an escaped prisoner, at least in the eyes of Rome. So and it was an acceptable practice to kill the prisoners if there was some threat that they could be uh, escaping. So they didn't want to risk losing them. However, while Luke doesn't state the nature of Paul's and Julius's, the centurion's relationship, I believe that a deep bond must have been formed between these two guys, these two men. Uh, perhaps the centurion had witnessed the political circus back in Caesarea, as Paul stood trial there before first uh, you know, Felix and then Festus and then King Agrippa, uh, perhaps the recent events that he'd witnessed had made a profound impact on him after, after, I mean, after they had gone through the whole thing with Fair Havens and Paul had warned them. And then now he's told them, you know, nobody's going to die. We're all going to make it to shore. You know, we don't know exactly what transpired. Luke doesn't tell us, but you've got to, you've got to know that there's a lot going on behind the scenes here for this guy to step up and to essentially violate an edict of Rome to say, no, don't kill the prisoners. And, and he specifically has Paul in mind. After days and days being battered by the storm, giving up all hope, Paul was the one had, that had spoken uh, of the angel's visit. And the, the, remember, he said to the God to whom I serve, that he would save all of their lives. Now, you got to understand, Julius is watching all of this. And, and he is seeing that as Paul is, is demonstrating the power of God in their circumstances, I've got to believe the lights are going on. And very often in our lives, folks, you may not think about it, you may not realize it, 
but people are watching your life. And they do. Uh, as many times over the years, I've been reminded, oh, wow, I had no idea you were watching or that you were listening or whatever. People watch us. And when they see the power of God at working your life, it is a huge testimony to him. So at this moment, the transom of the ship is breaking apart. The bow of the ship is stuck uh, either on a reef or in the sand. And the only thing that makes sense to me is that Julius had come to faith uh, as he now he's holding back the soldiers saying, no, don't, don't kill him. Don't kill Paul. Don't kill the rest. So the other thing about this is that he had those who could swim go head for shore first. And then the rest, uh, you got to remember too, as the transom broke up and the floating debris was being pushed forward by the wind and the waves, the rest grabbed onto that, to those pieces, and <laughs> surfboards, <laughs> and they made it to shore. What a scene. What a scene. I mean, what a, a frenetic, hectic scene. And yet, true to God's word, not a soul was lost. It's remarkable. They probably were not far from shore when they hit the reef or the sandbar. Uh, and yet, true, uh, again, remember, this is a raging typhoon. And the waves would have been huge. There would have been great risk. And not a soul was lost. Acts 28. Verse 1. Now, when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. So as you can see here in slide three, Malta is, it's known as an archipelago, archipelago. (laughs) I always have trouble with those big words. It's a small group of islands. How's that? (laughs) In the Mediterranean Sea, uh, between Sicily to the north and the north coast of Africa to the south. So uh, the main island is small. It's only about eight miles long or wide and about 18 miles long. Now it, in slide four, I want you to note the jagged coastline on the inset map. I, I started to do a satellite map, but it, it just wasn't, I couldn't get the, the resolution very well on it. Um, but note St. Paul's Bay on the northeast coast. That's where that bay is that I showed you the photo of a couple of minutes ago. So When Luke speaks of natives here in verse 2, he's not talking about a bunch of guys with bones in their noses and a big black kettle on the beach. (laughs) Oh, we got some visitors. Now, that's not what he's doing at all. He's talking about that. The Greek word for natives is barbaros. That's where we get the word barbarians. And it speaks of a native people in an area which don't speak the same language, either Greek or Latin, which were the spoken languages of the day. They spoke another language. And probably on Malta, it doesn't tell us, but probably Malta had at one time been a Phoenician colony, and they probably spoke Phoenician, uh, which was totally foreign to the guys that were there. Somehow or another, they parsed through the language problems, and they're able to communicate. So you have 276 soaking wet, cold people that had suddenly appeared out of a raging storm on their beach, and the locals immediately stepped up, extend kindness care for these sea-soaked, rain-soaked castaways. So great scene again. So the first order of business that they had was they wanted to get them warmed up and dried out. Obviously, you want to help these people. They've just been shipwrecked. (laughs) So they start a bonfire on the beach. Verse 3, but when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Wow. Wow. But before we get to that, 
I want to just encourage you, don't let the humility scene in this moment be lost on you. Uh, this, remember, this is the great apostle Paul. You know, he had been used of God to lead thousands of souls to Christ up until now, and since has been used of God to lead millions over the, over the ages. So, but in this moment, he's not running around letting everybody know what a hero he is for saving the people who were on the ship. He was greatly used of God in doing just that. No, he quietly begins to gather sticks because he wants to help with the fire. And folks, this is a beautiful picture of what it is to go low in servant leadership. That's what the body of Christ runs on. You know, we don't, I, it, it makes me pretty ill when I see somebody who is a supposed leader, especially in media, Christian media, where, you know, it's like, I'm the big shot. I'm, and they're not approachable. And they're people that are, I mean, they're above certain things. It's like, I don't ever want to be that guy. And, and, and we encourage servant leadership here because that's biblical. That it, this is very similar to what we see Jesus doing in Acts 21. When he's there, the guys are out in the boat. They fished all night, caught nothing. And he has laid a fire. He's actually made breakfast for his men. They weren't even supposed to be there at that moment. But it's, again, servant leadership going low. Uh, to be the greatest in the kingdom is to become the least. And Paul is living that out here as he has just washed up on the shore here in Malta. So are you familiar with the saying, just when you thought things couldn't get worse? <laughs> well, they just did. So having been tossed around like a, like a rag doll, really, in the Mediterranean for weeks, within minutes of making it to the shore <laughs> safely, Paul gets bitten by this venomous snake as he's putting wood on the fire. And you think, I, I think to myself, I mean, yeah, I could read this. I know the end from the beginning, but it's like, what would he be thinking? He's like, what gives, Lord? I mean, he <laughs> just came through this harrowing thing. I'm freezing cold, trying to get warm, and this, this venomous snake bites me. Now, it was probably just, this is free. <laughs> it was probably an asp viper. Uh, those are snakes that are common to Western Europe down through France and then Italy and they, and onto Sicily and at this time on the island of Malta. Very common in that region that these were the, the, they were like the premier poisonous snake. You don't want to have anything to do with them. Uh, it's interesting too that those snakes don't exist on Malta today. Uh, and tradition tells us, I mean, this is extra biblical stuff. Speculation, I don't know, but that after these events took place on Malta, that the people, whatever they saw a snake, it was like, oh yeah, get rid of that thing. And, and they literally eradicated them from the island. They're still on Sicily to the north and on through Italy and so on. Interesting. Um, verse four. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. <laughs> I love it. Whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. So we're not told specifically in the text that Paul was bitten by the snake. However, the wording in verses 3 and 4, it came out and fastened to his hand and now was hanging from his hand, seemed to indicate that's the case. That plus, <laughs> the, the natives are pretty jacked up about it, like, oh, let's wait for him to start flopping around on the ground and <laughs> all of that. So... Uh, <laughs> There's something going on here with what they're saying when they say that justice doesn't allow him to live. The Romans believed in one of, in their pantheon of gods, they believed in the goddess Justicia, all right, where we get the word justice from. 
And, and, and there was a Greek counterpart, not going to go into that, don't have time. But in this day, it, it was, you may have seen statues of a woman, and she has um, a sword in one hand, and then she has scales in the other. We see that with our justice system all the time. That's justicia. That's her. Now, she was believed to be responsible to, to enforce moral fairness in the human race. So when the residents of Malta saw Paul escape the shipwreck, only to be bitten by this venomous snake, that was proof in their minds that this goddess had weighed him on her scales, and found him guilty, and therefore swung her sword in judgment by sending the snake to kill him. That's how, this, how it shakes out in their minds. Now, of course, we know that that's pagan mythology, and it's, it's patently false. It's totally untrue. However, what is going on here in, in this moment? What has happened? Why survive the storm and the shipwreck, only to be bitten by a venomous snake moments after washing up on the beach? What gives? And Paul might be wondering at this point, what gives, Lord? <laughs> I don't get this. But as we'll see, God is moving. He is moving through the circumstances. He is always doing that in our lives. And I want to encourage you that as we go through storms, we'll talk about that as we get to the end of the message today, that as we go through them, to look for God's hand in the midst of it. We often don't understand it, but you got to understand that God is working things together for good, just like we're told in Romans. Verse 5, but he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Now, I don't think that Paul checked the endangered species list before he did this. <laughs> he's like, he's got one thing in his mind. It's like, get this thing off of my hand. I mean, the thing's latched to his hand. So I was thinking about this. I remembered something that happened when I was in my 20s. Uh, I had a four foot long California king snake that I kept as a pet. His name was Oscar. Yeah, we named him. And I, you know, that was, I just, I just liked snakes. <laughs> and now I learned that not everyone liked Oscar or me for that matter, because I had him as a pet. <laughs> One time I was looking for a babysitter and, and I, 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 yeah, yeah, you're going there. I got a hold of this teenage girl and she said, yeah, sure. I'll come and babysit for you. Uh, and I'll come and watch your kids. <laughs> and so a short while later, my phone rang and it was this girl's mother. And she had kind of an aggressive tone. And she said, are you that snake person? <laughs> and I was like, what? Uh, well, yeah, I have a snake as a pet. I've had him for years and, and he's harmless. <laughs> but shortly after that call, I was on the phone looking for another babysitter. So I don't really know how that applies. But folks, I want to encourage you. People get all kinds of weird ideas about snakes. We're not going to be having any snake bite services. You read that. I was talking with Harvey yesterday about that. I was like, you read about that sometimes. Like, oh, we're going to show our faith and we're going to have latch on. Do you have any idea how foolish that is? No, we're not going to go there. We're not those snake people. Verse 6. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. Yeah, they're waiting for this guy to go into convulsions. They're waiting for his throat to close. I mean, these guys are, the natives are are watching, right? The natives are restless here. (laughs) But after they looked for a long time, so no harm come to him, they changed their mind and said he was a god. So (laughs) 
you know, Paul's just standing there by the fire. He's probably talking with people, laughing. And boy, that was a harrowing escape from that ship. And, you know, going on, having conversation. And these guys are looking. They're waiting for him to die. They're waiting for him to just fall over. They're waiting for him to swell up or fall down dead, one or the other. And nothing happens. So in their minds, Paul went from being a murderer to a god. He went from being a zero to a hero, you know, and it's like, and if this is a vivid illustration of the fickleness, the changeableness of the human heart and mind. Um, we can fall into doing this with others, and maybe not to this extreme. We look at this and laugh. We can also fall into doing this with ourselves. I call it making up a story. It's a slippery slope. This is something I pray for that I guard against all the time. And it happens when we overlay our own biases or insecurities to a given situation where we either don't have or can't have all the information. Now, depending on what's going on, we either fill in those gaps that where we don't have the info. We fill them in with an idealized version. Have you ever talked to somebody who says, oh, I fell in love with this guy on the internet. It was so wonderful. We were just absolutely loving it. And they spend four days together. It's like, I can't wait to get away from you. Yeah because they created an idealized version of this person in their mind. So it, it can, I, the, or we fill it in with a hypocritical version. It's like, ah, oh, they're out to get me. I knew it. Ah, oh, you know, and shaking the, you know, the, the pointing the finger and all of that. It's like, folks, be careful. Be very careful. Because when we make up a story and we act upon it, essentially we're acting on bad information incomplete information. In this case, Paul was neither a hero or a zero, nor was he a murderer or a god. The truth of the matter is he was a willing vessel through which God would demonstrate his power. That was it. And God was moving through the storm, through the shipwreck, and now through this serpent. Why? Because he loves the people who are on the ship and he loves the people who are on this island. And he's about to make his power known so that the people would pay attention. There's something different going on here. The point is that God uses all of these circumstances to demonstrate his power, to reach a people who would otherwise be un- unreached with a message of hope and salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. It's not this mythological thing. It's not the stuff they're making up in their minds. That's what's true. That's what's going on. Verse 7, in that region, there was an estate of a leading, the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius. <laughs> I hope that that's his title, not his name. But anyway, Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So Publius is the head honcho on Malta. He's, he's the lead guy. And uh, I was looking at his name because I was thinking, man, you know, uh, oh, you know, honey, we have a beautiful baby boy. What do you want to name him? Well, I was thinking Publius would be nice. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that, maybe not for us. But it's an Italian name. And it's a, really, it's a cool name because the Latin word Publius means friend of the people. And this guy was. He's evidently, uh, he owned a, a property near the beach where they'd shipwrecked, took Paul and the others to his estate to provide for them, entertain them even. I mean, he's not just meeting their needs. He's entertaining these people uh, for several days because they, they would have to come up with some more permanent quarters within which these people could lodge. Because remember, this is October. <laughs> and it's going to be several months 
uh, before weather conditions would be favorable enough for them uh, to leave the island. They would spend the winter here on Malta. So at some point, Paul became aware that Publius' father was critically ill, asked to visit him, and uh, praying for him, laying his hands on him, Publius' father had been healed. Now there's no doubt in my mind, again, Luke doesn't say it, but we have to assume, and I, this is very safe interpretation here, <laughs> this is not spinning a yarn at all, you got to assume that Paul shared the source of his healing with Publius and his father because he never missed an opportunity to share the gospel. Verse 9, so when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. Hey, have you heard about this guy? This guy came out, he was shipwrecked, and now all of a sudden we've got people getting healed. Remember, this is a small island. The Maltese people, would have been a, they would have been a tight-knit group. Word would have flashed through the population uh, that Paul had done this. And, and, and as a result, he has one opportunity after another, after another, after another to share the love of Christ with those people who were being healed. You got to know that he always used those things, these, these attesting miracles. They were always to build a bridge to share the love of Christ with the people to whom he ministered. It wasn't just a healing service. And he's not throwing his coat and knocking a bunch of people over or any weird stuff like that. He is using this as a launching point to bring the gospel to an unreached people. That's what God was doing through the storm, the shipwreck, and the snake. All of it comes into focus as we study through this passage. These are not uh, separate events that just were happenstance. It was all part of God's purpose and God's plan from the beginning. Take heart. We go through storms. We go through times where our life gets banged up. We go through times where there are circumstances that come to bear. We're going to talk about that. I'm going to get ahead of myself here. It's very important that we understand that we see God's plan in all of this because it's not there. And nobody, Luke doesn't say, this is what God was doing. But you can't read this without coming away with a great sense that this is what God was doing. This is why he did this. This is why he engineered these circumstances. Were the people comfortable on the ship? Absolutely not. They lost hope. They were fearful. They didn't know what was going on. But the Lord did. Pretty safe to assume that by the time they left this island several months later, that a body of believers had been established and that there was a church on Malta. Verse 10, they also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. So the people, they go above and beyond consistently all the way through. I mean, we're talking Luke essentially from verse 9 and 10. He skips over several months that they were there on Malta. And, and these people were hospitable to the end. Now, th- there's one contrast here I want to point out. Unlike what we've seen in Paul's journeys where he, he faced great human opposition. I mean, every time you turn around, the, the people, has, he has either Jews or Gentiles coming at him. You know, take, dragging him out of town, leaving him for dead, stoning him, uh, you know, being thrown in jail, all of this stuff that happened to him. There's none of that that goes on on Malta. He has a great relationship with these people from the start. However, Paul's time on the island and his effectiveness in reaching the people was the result of multiple trials, piled one on top of the other, I might add, with the storm and the shipwreck and the snake. And we won't know till we get to heaven. Uh, just how many lives were impacted on Malta uh, through the work of Paul and, and probably Luke. 
likely Aristarchus, his traveling companion, perhaps even through Julius the centurion. Again, Luke doesn't include those things, but we can see, if not by reference, by inference, that there was a lot going on during this time that they were there. So I want to take a little bit of time this morning. Uh, we're going to stop there with the text, but, but, but we're not done. <laughs> so, by way of application, I want to talk about storms in the scriptures. What can we learn from them? You know, you see different kinds of storms. And I, I just, it's like, as I was studying, I just started to get into this. It's like, wow, there, there's a lot of different kinds of storms in the Bible. Uh, and I want to look at four of them this morning. And then we'll apply it as we go. So uh, the first one is what I would call a storm of correction. Storms of correction come. Look at Jonah. He was in a storm of correction. Remember, God told him to go to Nineveh. And he said, uh, <laughs> excuse me, you got the wrong guy. He rebelled. Did that stop God? <laughs> no, he went into the storm. You know the story, you know, the whole thing with the fish and all of that. It was a storm of correction. It was a chastisement as well as God getting him redirected and to go to Nineveh. You know, walking around, uh, what a great ministry. In 40 days, you're going to die. That was the message. That's it. (laughs) I'm glad I wasn't Jonah. In Hebrews chapter 12, looking at storms of correction, the writer there, he's actually, he's quoting Proverbs chapter three, but in Hebrews 12, five, we read this. He says, and if you've forgotten, and you have forgotten the exhortation which which speaks to you as to son, my son or daughter, you can definitely imply there, don't despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he scourges every son whom he receives. That's a hard thing. That runs right in the face of what I call feel-good Christianity. But you want to know something? It's true. There are times where the Lord allows circumstances to come to bear in our lives because of sin and rebellion. There's also some bad doctrine out there, and I, I've got to put this in because I don't want you to get the wrong idea or, or feel beat up. Um, there's, there's bad doctrine out there that assumes that somebody's out of God's will or somehow lacking faith because they're going through difficult circumstances. That is very dangerous. I have seen people try to lay that trip on somebody else, and it's damaging. It causes that person to get under condemnation. And for it, it opens a door for the enemy to just beat somebody up who's already going through tough stuff. Be careful. We got to remember God's purpose in those types of storms, the storms of correction. In Hosea chapter six, verse one, we see God's heart in the midst of the storms of correction. He says, come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn, but he will heal us. He, he has stricken, but he will bind us up. Remember, chastisement is a vital thing. It's healthy. We all experience it to one degree or another, but it's not God's purpose in every storm that we endure. Understand that. The second kind of storm that I want to look at here is storms of instruction. In Mark chapter 4, we see this kind of a storm, a storm of instruction. In verse 35, I'll pick it up there. Just read a bit, a section here. Uh, it says, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us cross over to the other side. You see there at the Sea of Galilee. And now when they had left the multitude, he, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. <laughs> That's just a great visual. 
(laughs) He's not only asleep, he's comfortable. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Very similar to what we saw with the guys on the boat. You know, we've given up hope. Then he arose and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? He told them to go to the other side. Then they ended up in a storm. This is a storm of instruction. He is going to teach them something in it. I want to point out, Jesus' men were not sinning. They weren't out of God's will. This was not a chastisement. But here's one of the problems. Often, too often, Christians can become Job's counselors in this kind of a deal. Yeah, you look at your life and see, or they look at your life, see that you're in difficult circumstances and have a difficult situation, and they mistakenly draw the conclusion that you must be sinning. Look at what God is doing to you. Folks, that is, a, that is a, a, as far from compassion as you can get. That is a horrible thing, and it happens. I hope it's not happened to you. I hope you've never done that to someone else. But take a lesson here. That's not the kind of storm that they were experiencing. This is a storm of instruction. It's not a storm of correction. Careful. You can do that by looking on the surface and observing people's circumstances, and that's a dangerous thing. You see circumstances at work in someone's life, you don't know what's going on. It's true, yeah, you can warn a Christian who is in sin and compromised. You can tell them, you know, if you continue on the course that you're on, God will chastise you. That's fair. That's fair. But you can't look at the person who's in the middle of difficult circumstances and say you're here because you sinned. That's not always the case. That's a dangerous presumption to make. Jesus' disciples were in the middle of the storm because they were in the middle of God's will. That's exactly where he wanted them. They weren't there because they were being chastened. They were there because he sent them into the storm on purpose. There are times where, you know what? I have absolutely concluded in my 40 years as a Christian that God is far more comfortable or far more interested in what he wants to do in my life in this moment or in this thing that I'm going through than how comfortable I am at a given point in time. That is not the God that we serve. He is working what the Bible refers to as an eternal weight of glory. And that doesn't come cheaply. Jesus' disciples were in the middle of the storm because they were in the middle of God's will. That's the point in this. It was a storm of instruction because when it was over... Look at his disciples' response. After he rebuked the wind and the sea, they said, who is this man that even the winds and the sea obey him? They're drawing some conclusions. They're being instructed. They're coming to some conclusions about him through the storm that they didn't have before the storm. So there are storms that are corrective. There are storms that are instructive. There are also storms that are directive. Storms of direction. That's the third one we want to look at here. That's the storm that caught Paul's ship and drove them. Didn't have time to turn around. Couldn't face into the wind. We just have to go where the wind has taken us. They needed to be directed to a certain place at a certain point in time. Remember, in, in chapter 27, verse 26, Paul says, we must run aground on a certain island. It was a certain thing. It was something, it was a, there was a destination to be had here. So he's not bringing correction through the storm that we see here in Acts. Nor was he working some kind of instruction in the midst of it. Well, let me teach you something. Yeah, and there were moments of that. I'm sure there is overlap in these things. 
But I'm telling you, bringing that home, this kind of storm is necessary in our lives. Let's face it, folks. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I often get very comfortable right where I am. And there are times where God says, you know what? That's not where I want you. I want to do something. I'm going to allow circumstances to come to bear that are going to cause you to have to flex and to yield and to move in the midst of this storm. And those are good things. They're not comfortable things. I will absolutely admit, I'm the guy that says, God, put cotton in your ears because I'm coming kicking and screaming. And yet they're necessary. Also times where I've made my plans and God has used a storm in my life to redirect the course of my life. He did that with my heart attack on a number of levels. It's not pleasant at the moment, but at the end of the day, I'll tell you what, and this isn't false piety. I mean it. I don't want it any other way. There's just a sense in me that says, Lord, if that's what you want to do, then bring it. Uh, I'm a weak man. I'm a broken man. I'm a man that just wants to be wholly submitted to your will. And if what that takes is a storm to get me from point A to point B, then so be it. Finally, there are storms of judgment in God's word. We see in Genesis chapter 6, there was a global storm that was coming as Noah was finishing building the ark. That was a storm of judgment. That was a storm that was coming upon the inhabitants, the inhabitants of the earth who had rejected God and rejected his rule. And folks, there is a firestorm of God's judgment on the horizon as I speak. It's there. We get up and we think that every day is going to be like the last dangerous supposition. Be sure you're not going to be overtaken by that storm. If you don't know Jesus, you need to know Jesus because judgment will come. Judgment is coming. And when the church is taken out of here and all hell breaks loose on the earth and God pours out his wrath in judgment upon this place, you don't want to be here. You want to be safely in your father's house. So as we look at these things in our own lives, we do well to take note of them. Storms that come into our lives should cause us to examine ourselves, to ask, Lord, is this a correction or some instruction or some direction that you want me to see in this storm? And yeah, when we're just a big pile of hurt, that's not always our first question. I get that. But don't leave here this morning without thinking that there's a great lesson in this for the people in our, for, our, for us and also for the people in our lives, the people who our lives encounter uh, as they were there on that ship. Remember, they lived it. They didn't say, wait till you see this. You're going to love this chapter. This is a great one. <laughs> this is going to be so exciting. How high drama can you get? High seas drama. We're going to be shipwrecked. We're going to lose the ship. We're going to have this huge storm for weeks. <laughs> We're going to be puking all over. Now, they, they're not all excited about this. They're out there on the sea feeling helpless and hopeless. They're crying out. You're going to let us all die. Don't you care, God? Don't you care what I'm going through? Yeah, he does care. He's just more interested in what he wants to accomplish in the lives of the people on that ship and in the lives of the people of that island than he is with how comfortable they are on the voyage. There's a lesson in this for us. Take it to heart. If sailing is smooth right now in your life, praise God. We go through seasons where it's just smooth sailing. And I'd be lying to you if I didn't say I love those seasons. I really like it when I don't have a bunch of stuff on my plate that's just (laughs) torturous. But if the storms are piling up and you don't know where to turn, 
Come away this morning with a great encouragement. Draw near to the Lord in the midst of it. Look up. Because storms come, don't they? In every one of our lives, storms come. For all of us, there's that ultimate storm. My prayer is that we learn to trust him in death when it comes. That he'll lift us up, carry us to the other side. In the meantime, learn to trust him in life's storms. The Bible tells us that he's an ever-present help in times of need and is there to take us by the hand and lead us through. I love in Hebrews where it says that we can boldly approach the throne of grace where we can find help and comfort in time of need. Final slide here. We're going to be moving on to Rome next week. We'll finish the book of Acts as we wrap it up. And I'm not telling you where we're going next. I just love to hang that. It's a stainless. Anyway, let's pray. Father, as we, uh, Lord, I know that there are people in this room who are in the storms this moment. And Lord, I don't know where people are. And yet, by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would reveal it. If it's a storm of instruction or correction or direction, or perhaps there, it's just confusing right now and it just plain hurts. If you're in that place and you feel overwhelmed by the storm, I want to pray for you specifically. If you would, just look up and meet my eye. I want to pray for you. Is that what you're doing? If I don't see you, slip your hand in the air. Is that what you're doing? Okay. Anybody else? Father, for these. Lord, we know that you're the, the, the great engineer of circumstances in our lives. I pray divine protection over these ones who have acknowledged that, whether they looked up or didn't. Pray that you would pour out your spirit, give illumination, insight, wisdom in the midst of the storm. And, and Father, that your healing hand would be upon them, that they would experience your touch as a balm for their souls. But sometimes it just hurts. Sometimes it's bewildering. Sometimes it's overwhelming. And yet we know that what you're working, as we've seen in this passage, what you're working is good. And for all of us, Father, give us great courage as we go through these things, as we face difficult circumstances. Help us to stand against the wiles of our adversary, to embrace Jesus in greater measure in the midst of them. And Lord, that you would be glorified in our lives as a result. These are divine things, Lord. They're divinely understood things. They're things that can only be understood through the eyes of faith. And so, Father, I pray, increase our faith. Give us the ability to see you in the midst. In Jesus' name, amen.